0: Please open your Bibles to Revelation, chapter 21, verses 1 through 8. The passage may be found in your pew Bibles on page 1041, 1041. I will be reading from the English Standard Version, which is the translation that Pastor Jeremy Fuller will be preaching from. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his holy word.
1: Please uh, keep your Bibles open to Revelation chapter 21. Let's pray. Father, I pray to you who has given this uh, vision to uh, your servant, who has given it for the uh, strengthening and the encouragement of the church, Father. I love this book. I desire to teach it to your people, Father, but I can only do so by the strength that you give. Please enable me this day to preach your word, Father. Please enable our hearts to hear it. May we have ears to hear what your spirit is saying to the churches. I pray, Father, that, you would, that we would live and do these things by your grace, that we would be uh, faithful to the end, even if it means the ends of our lives. And I pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So the Nazi party came into power in the 1930s and as they did the german pastor and theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer was appalled at the behavior of the german church there was not so much a forced complying to the views and the policies of this party as much as a fervor for the of many in the church to show their allegiance to the party and to uphold their policies what drove these pastors so, so, to so easily cave into the teaching and the demands of the world? What drove them to set aside Christ for these abominable things that they took up to align themselves with murderers? It may be that they were never followers of Christ in the first place. It's likely that they caved into fear for their lives because they saw grace as something cheap. And what do we typically do with cheap things? Do we put a lot of care into them? I mean, they're certainly not worth our life, are they? This occurrence in the German church was a result of men who, when push came to shove, saw their places of comfort in this world as far more valuable to them, far more worth their allegiance than their devotion to Christ. They were willing to give up anything to keep their place in this world. And they gave up everything. Now Bonhoeffer spoke out against this cheap grace of the worldly church in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. He said it was the enemy of the church to think that grace of the grace of God in Jesus Christ could be had without repentance, without a change of life, without being willing to set aside everything just to follow him. Cheap grace is the enemy of the church, the deadly enemy of it. Now let's look further back. Let's look at the first few centuries of the church. And among the uh, various pagan Roman practices of the time, uh, in the first three, few centuries of the church, we have the practice of the emperor cult. Basically, uh, this start is something that started in Asia, uh, where temples were built to the emperor he was worshipped as divine, as the savior of his subjects, as a sovereign ruler of the world. And at various points in time, edicts were made that all Roman citizens, all who lived in the empire, had to sacrifice on behalf of the emperor, and even sacrifice to the emperor. If you complied, you were given a note of, that bore witness to your complying. Um, if you did not, well, you were usually... You could be ostracized from society. You could be barred from making a living. Oftentimes, imprisonment and death were part of the results. And this was not just a normal death. This was a horrible death at the hand of brutal people. Now, how did the church respond to this? Well, there were some who caved in in fear, who were willing to burn a pinch of incense to the emperor. But there were many who refused They refused to give in to the demands and the pressures of this world. To deny their Lord, they refused to sacrifice to the emperor. So what do you think happened to many of them? Many Christians died for their faith. And if you've ever read any of the accounts of this, uh, any of the accounts of the Christians' behavior when they were captured, you may know that they did not resist Sure, they didn't seek to be captured. They didn't walk up to the Romans. They fled when they had the chance. But when they finally were caught, when they were in the corner, their response is amazing. They walked head held high, radiating the peace of God, singing hymns of praise and thanksgiving to their Lord, even as they were, some of them were torn apart by wild animals in the arenas. As bloodthirsty people watched on, and egged on the beast. Polycarp, the bishop of Smyrna, was told that if you you don't do this, you will be sent to the animals. He said, bring the animals. Well, I have fire too. Go ahead. I have served my God these 80-some years. He has never done me any wrong. Why would I deny him now? And Polycarp burned at the stake. Now perhaps you're listening to this, and you... uh, you see this sort of joy at the face of death to be macabre. obscene, the behavior of brainwashed fanatics. However, the truth is that this was the result of men and women who have a much clearer view of the reality of reality than many of us here in America have today. Here we tend to try and hold on to heaven and the, this world with both hands. We say we follow Jesus by actually, and at the same time, actually refusing to do so. And these Christians who have given up their life for Christ, who have been willing to die for the sake of the gospel, of whom the world is not worthy, they have no illusion that grace is a cheap thing. They see what it costs their Lord to accomplish their salvation they see it as the most precious thing they could ever have and are willing to set everything aside for the, for the sake of it, including their own lives if necessary. That is how valuable grace is to these people. So what about us? What are we willing to set aside for the sake of the grace of the, of God, of the gospel in Jesus Christ? What are we willing to set aside for he who died for our sins? Well, I would like to encourage us to think about this sacrifice in a different way today. And I'd like to start with an illustration. Uh, Imagine you're at a yard sale. Uh, You have $50 for the day, and you're looking forward to a day of shopping and bargain hunting. You come across a brooch, and you recognize it. This was made by Tiffany. It's probably worth thousands of dollars. And you take it up to the lady, trying to keep cool because you don't want her to know that it's something valuable, and she says, it's, what, do you, what do you want for this? And you say, she says, $50. Would you say to that person, man, that's a little too far out of my price range. This is all the money I have for today, and I was really looking forward to a day of yard sale hunting and bargain shopping. You'd be a fool if you did that. You'd give her that $50, you'd take that brooch, and you'd sell it for the thousands that it was worth. This is what Jesus says the one who sees and understands the grace of God is like. A man who finds a treasure hidden in a field, so he goes and sells everything that he has to buy that field. You see, that person really is not making a sacrifice, are they? They just have a good sense of value. They're trading up as it were. And in the same way, the person who gives all they have, even their life, over to the service of God, they are not really sacrificing anything, are they? They're trading up. They see what is of eternal value. They're willing to let go of the things of this world to get what they cannot lose. Listen to these words of Jesus And everyone who has left house or brother, or sister, or father, or mother, or children, or land, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold, and will inherit eternal life. Matthew nineteen twenty nine. A hundredfold, eternal life. Does that sound like a sacrifice? That sounds like good fiscal deals. Now, what is it exactly that the Christian has to gain by following Christ? What is, it so, what is it exactly that Christ has to offer to you? Well, before the close of the first century, uh, Jesus delivered a vision to his servant John, a message to the seven churches in Asia, and also to the, all the Christians in the Roman Empire and throughout history, even to this day. It is a message that is very well summed up by the words of Jesus. In this world, you will have trouble but take heart i have overcome the world you see the christians in this region of the world would soon face the hatred of this world if they weren't already and they, because jesus they hated him first they will live in a land where the chief god is the devil the great serpent and they would have to face a decision will you protect your life now and by so doing align yourself with this devil Or would you entrust yourself to your God and Savior, knowing that even if you lose everything now, you will never lose your eternity with him? Of course, as you know, I'm talking about the book of Revelation. And throughout the book of Revelation, Christ gives us a promise that the one who conquers, meaning the one who refuses to deny their faith in Jesus or compromise it, even if it means persecution and death, will have eternal life. Consider a few of his words to the churches in Asia. Uh, First, the church in Ephesus that had lost their first love. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Or consider his words to the church of Smyrna where Polycarp was from, a church that was poor by worldly standards but rich in faith. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Or God's Christ's words to Philadelphia, a church that had proven their faith. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. And from this, similar promises are peppered throughout the bulk of Revelation. And these promises come to a crescendo with chapter 21. Following this, we saw the great casting down of the enemy in the great judgment day. And 21 begins this marvelous final vision. And it is this vision that I want to focus on today, just to show you what is in store for those who conquer, the one who holds to the end, the one who truly puts their faith in Christ, and therefore trusts him completely, even if it costs them every worldly thing. And this vision is a hope that is before the Christian eyes, before Christians around this world today who suffer for their faith. Look what it says in verse 1. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Now the Greek word here is the word kairos. Uh, It's one of several words that can be used to mean new. Here it refers to something that is new in quality rather than new in time a renewed heaven and earth, a resurrected, glorified heaven and earth, if you will. And this is something which Paul speaks about in Romans. Um, that the creation, which, that he speaks about the creation which groans under the weight of the, of the uh, fall of sin, of the curse, until the revealing of the children of God. One day, the world will be free from its bondage to decay and futility. And this is what we are seeing here. The world we live in now, as Paul says, as we see in Genesis 3, is under the bondage of decay. It is a world that is full of futility. We live in a world of thorns and brambles and dust, sweat on our brow, the biting animals and disease. God has subject the world to this in order to show us the consequences of our sins, But here we see that this world, is all that is taken away. It is renewed. The former things, the world that we live in now, will pass away. And God will make all things new. And we also look at this in what we see at the end of verse 2. We see it says that the sea was no more. Now what does this mean? Does it mean there will be no more walks on the beach in heaven? There will be no more boating or fishing on the piers? Now, I would like to remind you that what we see in Revelation are symbolic visions. Revelation paints pictures with highly symbolic imagery to show us biblical to- truth. So we at- must ask here the question, what significance does the sea have that is here depicted as not being a part of the new heavens and the new earth? What, is- what significance does it have in the book of Revelation and in the Bible in a whole- as a whole? Well, in Revelation, first we see at the end of chapter 20 that the dead, at the, end, at the final judgment, the sea gave up the dead that was in it. So the sea has some, some correlation with death in biblical imagery. Going back further in Revelation, you see that the, the first beast, the beast that the devil uses to draw people away from the true worship of God, comes out of the sea. And this is an echo of what we see in Daniel. In Daniel, four beasts come out of the sea. And this beast in Revelation is an amalgamation of all four of these beasts. On top of this, the uh, great serpent, the dragon, as he is described, uh, the devil, as he is described in Revelation, is, uh, is basically, he's a sea serpent. He's a serpent who stands on the sea and on the sand. And this points back to the Old Testament where the evil nations that rebel against God are depicted as great sea animals, sea beasts that God has to subdue. For example, the book of Ezekiel, God calls the Pharaoh of Egypt a great sea creature that he will put his hook in the creature's mouth. You can even go back to creation. What was the world like before God ordered it and filled it with things? It was, uh, it was water. It was uh, deep. We talk about the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the water. And God ordered it. He turned or- chaos into order. And look at the flood. What was the flood but God's uh, expression of his um, wrath against sin? He brought the world back to a pre-creation place in order to recreate it again. So the waters, the sea, the churning, bubbling sea could be seen as an expression of death. It could be seen as an expression of chaos. Against the, it could be seen as an expression of the domain of sin, Satan, the wicked, the dead. Suffering, affliction, the persecution that Christians are facing in the book of Revelation and in this world. So what does the removal of it mean? It's a removal of these things, a removal of the curse, a removal of the enemy, a removal of all that is in opposition to God. We see that in this chapter, in verse 4, where God says there will be no more death, no more crying, no more sorrow. So that is what the idea of the missing sea means, that God, there will be nothing that will be frightening, there will be nothing that is alarming, there will be nothing that will cause death or rebellion against God in this new heaven and in this new earth. So I ask you, which one of these sounds great right now? How does this new heaven and this new earth compare to the one we live in now? As you sit here in your pew, which one do you want more? Yeah, isn't it often the case... It's easy right now to sit here and say, that sounds pretty good. But isn't it often the case when the rubber hits the road, we act as if this world was a truly valuable one? As if this world was all that we have in this life and we'll do anything to protect it? So I ask you, what area of your life do you act this way? <clears> hmm. <throat> And just remember, you are living your eternity now. If you are a Christian in Christ, you are living the life now that you will one day live in eternity. So seek to live so now. Value the things that God values. Set your heart on them and not on the things of this world because they are passing away. But this world is going to be forever. And now the second point. We see that in this vision that this new heaven and this new earth will be where God dwells in unbroken fellowship with his people. John says that he saw the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. You see, in the Old Testament, Jerusalem was where the temple was. And therefore, it is the predominant expression in the Bible of God's dwelling place with man. And in this way, Jerusalem foreshadows the church. And here when we see the vision, we see the church glorified. The city is beautiful and radiant, like a bride who has been made ready for her wedding day. And this biblical, this imagery of marriage is so important here because it teaches us so many things about about God and our relationship with him. First, we see God's purpose in our life. If you were at Sunday school today, we learned that the purpose of our lives is not to fill it full of stuff, to make us comfortable, to make us happy, to make us secure, to build up a retirement fund. It is to make us holy. It is to make us blameless. It is to make us a priest, a kingdom of priests for our God. We see that here. The the new Jerusalem, the people of God, they are robed in white. They are set apart for Him alone. They are pure and holy, and His alone, like a bride. We also see here the delight that Christ has for His people. Just how close we will be for them, Christ loves His bride. He will cherish her. He will protect His people, and He will delight to see her one day glorified. Man, I don't know if you uh how well you remember your wedding day? I have seen many men brought to tears by the sight of their bride on their wedding day. Imagine that. Jesus will delight to see you. He will delight to see his people. In the same way a groom beams to see his bride in all her radiance and beauty. So if you remember the joy of your wedding day, or think about the longing that you have for it, imagine what it is going to be like one day to stand before he who died for your sins. Now in the next chapter, this city will be described um, in further detail, and we will see that it is described as a city, a garden, and as the most holy place of the temple. This culmination of all of God's redemptive work is a restoration of man's fellowship with God in the garden. The restoration of all that was broken by sin. You see, man once walked with God in the garden. Then he sinned, and he was driven out of God's presence. We have lived separated from God since then. But Christ died on the cross. He tore the temple curtain asunder. And now Christians have full access to the throne of God. And one day, you will live in that access unbroken. You will live before God forever. I will tabernacle among my people, he says. No longer will there be a barrier between me and them. No longer do they have to fear to be in my presence. I will walk with them as I once did in my garden. I will be their great treasure. They will be my inheritance and I will be their comfort and their consolation. Now verse 4 is probably one of the most precious verses of the book of Revelations. And it is undeniable that we live in a world that is drenched in tears. I'm sure you have all faced the pain of loss, the terror of death, the frustration of futility. We have all felt the hurt of betrayal, the searing ache of regret and loneliness, the prickles of temptation and longing, and most certainly the pain of the consequences for our sins and the sins of others. And that is such an integral part of our experience that perhaps we're prone to think that this is just a natural way things are. But I tell you, this is not the case. We live in a world that is marred by sin. But not only do we have God's promise that this world will one day be restored, but he ha- we have His promise that one day God will personally tend to and mend all of the hurts that we have experienced, all of the sorrow that we have gone through. We have this image here of God picking up each of us in his arm like a parent with a hurt child, cradling them in their arms, wiping away the tears from their cheeks, and saying, there, there, it's going to be okay from now on. What a tender image of our God. He will remove your hurts and pains from this life, and you will remember them no more. Not only this, but there will be nothing to bring them back. Nothing. No more crying. No more sorrow. No more mourning or death or pain. That is gone with the former things. None of them will blemish this new creation. None of them will blemish my relationship with my people, says God. None of them will blemish your joy and your peace and your eternal happiness. Does this fill you with longing for, for this? Does this take your mind and your heart off of the things of this world? Now, the remainder of our text offers a few promises that I would like to discuss. First, we see in verses 5 to 7 that these things are certain. This is the declaration of the Alpha and the Omega. He has promised it. And this term Alpha and Omega refers to the fact that God is sovereign. He is the beginning of all things. And He brings all things to completion. They are all there for Him. What then, can thwart God? What can stop him from bringing these things about? What can stop him from bringing them about in your life? Can sword? Can danger? Can loss? Can nakedness? Can even your own sin bring these things, keep these things from coming to you if God so wills it? No. So why would we fear? Why would we fear the persecution of man if none of these things can separate us from God? And this is a certain, as a legal contract, it will happen. Perhaps we want to make sure that our children get what is ours when we die. So we write a will and we put our trust in a will. A will is a a certain thing. It's going to happen. If I, I want my kids to get my house and my money, so I'll write a will and then it is sure to happen. What is more certain is God's will. He wills that those who put their faith in him, those whom he has saved, will have this inheritance. It is yours by right now because I have made you my child. You are my son. And we will inherit these things with Christ. Nothing can take them away from us. Certainly not the sword of men. Certainly not the persecution of this world. And certainly not the evil one. And maybe these things seem too good to be true. Maybe you have experienced so much disappointment in this life, so much pain. Maybe you think, how could this part possibly har- how could there possibly be in light in the end of the tunnel? But again, do you think that He who created all things and for whom all things are made will really back out on His word? This is what it says in the Book of Numbers. God is not a man that he should not lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said it, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Yes, man may disappoint you. Schemes and dreams and ambitions will certainly crumble in this life. But hope in the Lord, for he will never disappoint. He will not fail to come through with all that he has promised for his people. These words are trustworthy and true. You can take them to the bank of heaven. God will make good on his word. You see, if you make your hope, if you set uh, your sight on all these things of this world that are prone to crumble, you will be disappointed. But if you set aside the things of this world, which are certain to crumble for the things of God, you are not really making a huge sacrifice, are you? As Jim Elliott once said, by the way, Jim Elliott is a man who was speared to death in South America, trying to bring the gospel to the lost. This is what he says. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he can never lose. On top of this, we have God's gift of grace now and eternal life to come. Look at verse 6. In verse 6, the voice from the throne declares, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. So God promised you, if you are weary, if you are parched by the heat of the sun and this world, God offers you free of charge to drink from the unending pools of his grace to refresh you and to sustain you now and to enliven you, give you the promise of eternal life and eternal access to the font of his grace in the world that is to come. So are you willing to go through the desert of this life to turn aside from the tepid pools that this world has to offer even though you may thirst for a time, even though you may come under the threat of sword and danger, knowing that the font of God will never be taken away from you. Yes, when we're thirsty, the pools of this world look delicious and tempting, but they are fetid, they are rotten, they are full of, of slime and insects. They will bring us nothing but pain and death if we drink from them. God calls us, now, to drink deeply from him, knowing that one day we will drink deeply for all eternity. So how does this promise look to you? We saw this video of Christians who face a lot for the sake of Christ, more than we ever have. To tell you the truth, when someone calls you something on Facebook because you're a Christian, that's not the same level of persecution as someone who has half their face blown off for the sake of Christ. There's one more promise in this book. And this promise is a double-edged sword. I'm speaking of verse 8. Verse 8 talks about those who will not be in this kingdom, those who will be cast out into the lake of fire and sulfur, there is no place in this kingdom for such people. God is pure and holy, and there is no place for filth or dirt in his presence. So the one who has not had the dirt of their sins cleansed away by the blood of Christ, or who sets aside the Lord for the things of this world, will have no place in this eternity. Oh, they will have a eternity, but it is not the eternity of the blessed presence of God. What we see here, and I say this as a double-edged sword because this will be joy for God's people. There will be no more problems in heaven. There will be no more dirt or sin. There will be no more temptation. That will be for our joy. But those who are still corrupted by their sin, those who have never been washed clean by the blood of Christ, those who set aside Christ for the things of this world, their, their possession, their portion is a lake that burns with fire. So think about it. Do you, will you do anything to resist, to uh, avoid any sort of pain in this life now, any sort of difficulty, even if it means setting aside your faith in Christ? Well, you will never escape pain this way. You will have it eternally. Will escaping pain for 70 years be worth an eternity of torment under the wrath of God? Well, look at the opposite. Will a brief 80 or 90 years of pain be worth the eternal removal of these things and living in the presence of God? You see, you can either live your worst hell now or the only taste of heaven you will ever experience now. Which will you choose? Christ died on the cross that all who believe in him will escape the horror and terror of eternity if you have yet to put your faith in Christ, you can do so now and escape these things here. So, do you see this vision? Do you see how this drove many people to face pain and persecution and death? They saw the world as nothing. These pains as nothing compared to the weight of the promise of God through Jesus Christ. And I have to ask each of us here, where are you hoping to find Heaven. Are you looking to find heaven on earth now? Are you willing to fight for it and defend it at any cost? Perhaps you have a perfect home. Perhaps you have the most fulfilling and profitable career, the picturesque family, the strong, strapping husband, the devoted, beautiful wife, neighbors, and friends who admire you, a church ministry that is full. Are you hoping in the next president or the government policies? Are you expecting your youth and health to last forever? Or maybe you don't have any of these things, and you think that life is not worth living until you do. So what takes up your thoughts, your daydreams, and your ambitions? On what do you rest your hope? I don't mean what is supposed to be the Christian hope, but what practically do you hope on? What practically gets you up in the morning? Where are you practically seeking heaven? And whether you have what you want or don't, let me tell you right now, you will never be able to bring heaven to existence here on earth. It will never happen. Because even if you have the most picturesque life, it will be marred by sin and futility. Even if you get everything you want, the reality of life will let you down. And don't forget, the most, if you get everything you want in this life, the most important thing will be missing. Can you see what it is? If you seek to make heaven on earth for yourself, it will never be heaven because it will lack the holy presence of, the, of God and of the Lamb. Oh yeah, that. Is that not in our plans? Do we often dream of a heaven with that big gaping hole in it that is God's presence? What does it say about us that we can so easily picture heaven without God being there. And maybe to finish this off, you're thinking, oh, I would surely die for Jesus. Well, good, I hope so. So how are you dying for Jesus now? The Lord says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. We daily die for Christ when we deny ourselves. When we say no to our temptation and willingly take on the pain and frustration of unfulfilled sinful desire. So how are you doing this today? How are you setting yourself aside for the sake of Christ and others? Because the truth of the matter is, if we can't do this in our lives now, how will we fare when we have to give up everything, even our lives, for martyrdom in the future? So are you willing to pay this cost to be a disciple of Christ? It is nothing compared to the cost that earned your salvation, the precious blood of the lamb, and and any so-called sacrifice that you have to make now. It is a pittance compared to what you have to gain from Christ. So may God grant his church the strength to die more and more to self, that we may live that eternal life which is already ours in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this vision you have given to your people, the sight of heaven of eternity. I pray, Lord God, that you would use many to, bring, to draw people to yourself. I pray that you would use this vision to draw all of us, to set our hope and our affections on Christ eternally, that we would be willing to walk into the loss of every worldly thing in order to gain every eternal thing. I pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.